And I invite you to give your attention to God's word. We are in uh, today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be looking uh, at verses 16 to 17. I'm taking a break from Luke. Uh, we've got a lengthy passage ahead of us there to deal with two kingdoms, and uh, I know that Sunday school is important, and I want to make sure that we get out on time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and so... Uh, just thought we would uh, look at a text that I think is encouraging and helpful for us in this new year. And, um, you know, I've been wondering this week, when is it no longer appropriate to say Happy New Year? Um, I don't have my mother's uh, Emily Post or uh, Gloria Vanderbilt or any of those volumes now available that used to be on the shelf, and I didn't read them at home either, but at least I would have had a reference point there and haven't thought to Google it. Don't you ever think about that? At what point do we stop saying Happy New Year? Is it the sixth day of the month? Is it the 15th day of the month? Uh, Do we carry it over into February? Do we just kind of let it go all the way up to the point we'll say Happy Valentine's Day? When do we stop saying Happy New Year? Well, I want to consider something with you today, that there is something about the Christian life, and as we observe it and consider it, it is always new. Hear God's word. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. For the grass does wither and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. Always new. There are those who like new things. I remember a man back home who would buy a car every so often because once the new smell left one, he was craving it in another. In our own family, we particularly take joy in opening new ice cream. Kathy's Kathy's family especially will emphasize the word new when we open that ice cream. That's one of my favorites. We could have a new suit of clothes. We could have a new hairstyle. Thank you. I did mine this morning. All sorts of things that we uh, relish to have new. And yet, we live in a world that It's under a curse, and we have to deal with the problem of entropy. That is, things don't stay new. They deteriorate. That brand-new car you get, if you keep it long enough, sooner or later, rust will begin to show up somewhere. Dirt will begin to take its toll, and we'll experience the problem of things returning to a simpler state than what they are. As someone reminded me this past week, the Titanic, there it is submerged under all of those many meters of water out there in the North Atlantic. And it's just slowly disintegrating into nothing. And I think about how it was produced. And at the time, it was thought to be the, you know, the largest thing that, that anybody had ever built. And someone made the remark that made it into the papers, even God himself couldn't sink her. And there she is after all of these many decades, beneath all of those many meters of water, disintegrating slowly into nothingness. But when we think about what Christ has come to do, we consider the one agent who 
is able and has accomplished the reversal of this trend. Where things normally are moving from a state of complexity to simplicity as we think of entropy or just consider it in a, another less complicated way, things die, things deteriorate. Christ has accomplished a work that is forever new. Now, Paul tells us just in these two verses, first of all in verse 16, even before we get to the outline, that we have to regard Christ in a way differently than we do anyone else. And there's a lot of discussion and debate over exactly what this verse means. But I think there are two important things in regard to this before we get to verse 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We have to consider that everyone we know is a spiritual being. Everyone we know has a physical body. And there's that physical aspect. There is flesh. After all, I haven't conversed with anyone and had them talk back with me in a normal way who was anything other than in the flesh. God is spirit. Speak to him in prayer. But as far as people that I know, beings that I know, we're all clothed in flesh. And yet, that flesh is the tent which is inhabited by the soul or the spirit. All of us will endure forever. And we have to consider that matter when we see others. We particularly have to regard Christ in a way that is not just according to the flesh. Now, make no mistake, we've just come through the Christmas season when we have celebrated the fact that he became flesh, clothed in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, as we sang that wonderful hymn. And yet, Christ, being fully God, until he became a human being, was spirit and accomplished work that no one else could, being uniquely the Son of God. And so when we think of Christ, we don't think of him merely as a man, as we would others, nor can we consider him merely the way our natural minds would lend to us considering him. Our minds have to be transformed. We have to be able to discern things spiritually. We have to be renewed. That new birth that God gives us that we'll talk about in just a moment that transforms us and enables us to see the world through a different lens. We have to consider Christ as the Holy Spirit has illumined to our hearts the truth of who Christ is. We consider him as he really is. And that really is the problem. That's why there's never a reconciliation between the way that the world knows Jesus and understands him and the way that believers understand him. That's why you're probably not going to anytime soon turn on a public television and see a documentary concerning the Lord Jesus and them accurately portray who he really is. Now, they, of course, produce very intelligent material, lots of knowledge, lots of insight, lots of things there that are considered, a lot of them wrong, but nevertheless intelligent. It's, you know that, don't you? You can be very smart and very wrong at the same time. Just want to plant the thought. Think about that. Some of you husbands needed to hear that this morning. But the mind being renewed so that we're able to think correctly about who the Lord Jesus is. It's not possible apart from the operation of the Holy Spirit. My sin nature would not permit me to see him as he really is. 
So we can't simply regard him as we do others. But we get to the point, don't we? Therefore, wherefore, if anyone is in Christ, now let's stop right there just a moment. How can anyone be in Christ? How could a sinner like me be considered as one in union with Christ? That is the great miracle of the Bible, this glorious work of salvation, wherein the Holy Spirit will take an unworthy creature and unite us to the work of the one who is worthy. We come to the table of the Lord Jesus today recognizing that he is the one who is worthy to offer that sacrifice unto God once and for all because in his perfect life and in that perfect sacrifice, we don't need to go any further. If you're traveling down life's highway and all of the possibilities are ahead of you, when you come to Christ, you can stop and get out. The journey is over. He's the one you need. Anything else is just pretending. And so, to think of this glorious miracle that is the union of a believer with the Lord Jesus, one who is unworthy, one who is sinful, one who falls short of the glory of God, one whose heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? How can, how can someone like that be united to an all-perfect, holy, and righteous God? That's the work the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to be in Christ is to be in union with him. And that means he abides in us and we abide in him. Think of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Think of uh, the way in which God commanded the Israelites to construct that tent, that tabernacle with all of those animal skins and all of the linen and all the other materials that went into it. But what did you have at the end of the day? You had a a man-made, a human-made dwelling place. What did God need with a dwelling place like that? The Lord wasn't roaming about on the earth somewhere saying, I sure wish somebody would build a shelter for me. All perfect, all holy God who has spun all of the galaxies into existence and right now even is holding them in place didn't need a place to dwell, but he graciously, kindly chose to dwell with his people. And so he gave them instructions to build a tabernacle. And he said, I will dwell there with my glory. It's not because he needed it. And it's not because he needs us. It's because we desperately need him. And likewise, to think of Christ, who am I that he would indwell me? And yet in John 15, verse 4, he says, abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't get anything else that I say today, get that last phrase. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Just like the branch on a grapevine, has to be in the vine. It's not going to produce grapes unless it's in the vine. There's no sap that's going to rise through that branch. There's no nutrients. There's no material. There's nothing. There's no life that's going to course through it, enabling grapes to come from that stick unless it's in the vine and it's living. And so Jesus is that which we need. We abide in him when we yield our lives to him, repenting and trusting in him, 
we come into this union with him so that life flows through us. And the evidence of that life is the fruit that our lives bear. That's what it means. You can't operate spiritually apart from the Lord Jesus any more than one of these lights could work if you loosed it from its socket. I don't care how well it's manufactured. I don't care how good it looks. If it's not in that socket, if the base of it is not connected to the electricity that's coursing through, that light will be no more lit than the end of my finger is right now. God gives us life through Christ. But more than that, as we think of abiding in him and he abiding in us, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in me, that's my life. It doesn't originate with me. I can't make myself alive. It is Christ who enters in, the Spirit of God himself, uniting us to Christ so that he, Christ, through the Spirit, indwelling me, gives me that life. And he's continually giving me that life. And yet, crucified with him. Think of it. As we experience all of the ramifications of the fall and we see the consequences of death and we only come to realize that as life enters and we begin to see as we ought to see we realize that only in Christ there is life and so to be in Christ is to be a completely new creation Jesus had told Nicodemus who was there you must be born again but remember the word you is in the plural as I've said often, we, if he were in the southern United States, he would have said, y'all must be born again. Because in English, we don't distinguish, right, between you singular or you plural. And in the original, it's in the plural. So don't let anybody tell you that Jesus only said that to Nicodemus. Understand this. He was talking to Nicodemus, but he made a universal application. You must be born again. That's new life, which Christ bestows. In Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6, the man of God again, the Apostle Paul says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, that is God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So when you think of the death of the Son of God on the cross, we we think of ourselves there. The old nature being put to death. And as we consider his resurrection, we realize we too have been raised to walk in newness of life just as surely as Jesus came out of that grave by virtue of the fact that my life is united to his, I have that new life in me. And yet the former life is forever in the past. Note how that uh, in our text, in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. That's a One and done. That's a past completed action. Upon coming to Christ, that old man, that old person, that old nature passes away. Now, the vestiges are still with us. I'm not preaching the possibility of perfection in this life. But who I was is no more. 
what we have in exchange is something glorious. Isaiah prophesied concerning this in chapter 43 of this book. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, as we see there, under this consideration of things being made new. But in order to get to the new part, you have to be, first of all, to the place that you realize, I died, and I'm no more. What I'm basically trying to tell you is this. Christianity is not a whole bunch of things to do. Christianity is a whole new life. Yes, it's a way of living, but in order to get to that way of living, you have to have a new life in order to live it. You can't anymore do it yourself in the flesh than uh, you could expect a, a walnut to jump up off the ground and hit somebody in the head without somebody throwing it. That illustration came to me this morning as I was coming to church. I remembered a cousin of mine giving life to a walnut in that way when I was young. You just don't have the ability to live for Christ apart from the Spirit working in you. Don't even want to live for Him. Even if you, you know, you screw yourself up and decide, I'm going to make this New Year's resolution and make a list of moral things you're going to do, spiritual things you're going to do, or exercise at the gym, whatever it is. When it comes to living the Christian life, you can't do it apart from the Christ abiding in you. But this former life is forever in the past. That's why Paul says, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing on toward the mark, which is our high calling in Christ Jesus. Leaving them behind. And the new life we have in exchange is everlastingly new. This is the extraordinary thing because the tense here of the verb is not one and done. It is an ongoing process. Everlastingly new. Renewing and becoming new. That's extraordinary. Because we don't see that anywhere else in life. Once we open that carton of ice cream and start dipping it out, guess what? Elijah hadn't come along like he did with the widow and replenished the oil and that ice cream just dissipates right out of the carton. And there's some sort of physical law at work there. I'm not sure why. Once the first scoop comes out, it just seems to disappear on its own. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll go to the freezer and I'll say, where is that ice cream? Yes, continually made new. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Put off your old self. You see, Christ has accomplished the work in us by causing that old to pass away. But yet, as new life has come in, we join him in this effort in, in putting it off. He does the work. He's doing it through us. We can't take credit for it. Remember, any more than a paintbrush can take credit for painting a wall. But even so, Paul says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. New. Ever new. Only to be realized in full when we stand before him, glorified. Brand new bodies like unto his. But in the meantime, that's where I'm headed. Dying to self. Putting to death those sinful desires. And living for him, all by grace, because it's the Son of God working in me. And it's not just that he's making me new. 
Ultimately, all things will be made new. Isn't that wonderful? He says in the Revelation, Behold, I am making all things new. All of creation will be renewed. If you think something is beautiful now, if you think going out to the beach or going up to the mountains or the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains or just looking out over the sea or up into a vast blue sky and you think that's gloriously beautiful, just wait until all of it is renewed when the vestiges of sin and the curse are completely gone and we see all that Christ accomplished through His redemptive work and through His death on the cross. Oh yeah. We'll look back at our old self and what we saw and what we experienced and we'll think that we should have said to ourselves then, I ain't seen nothing yet. And it's true. What you see now is just a taste because that's what Christ is accomplishing. All of humanity together in all of its decades and centuries of effort and expenditure of wealth and riches, all effort combined, could never achieve or accomplish what that one man, the God-man, has done for us on the cross. And so we trust in no other. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, bless us, O Lord, as we come to the table of the Lord Jesus, as we give you thanks for the privilege. We thank you for all that these elements represent and pray that inasmuch as we partake of them by faith, that we even here and now will experience something of that renewal that is taking place, that we will be glad to cast off the old and embrace the new with thanksgiving in our hearts. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.